Good morning. We please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians we're in today and in chapter 3. Today we'll be looking at Galatians 3 verses 15 through 18. If you don't have access to a Bible right now, we've reprinted it on the back of your bulletin. Well, we're going through all of Galatians 3 this summer season. And Paul, so far, has been comforting the Galatian believers and confronting false teachers. He's comforting and confronting. And the false teachers wanted the Galatian Christians, who were Gentiles, to think that Christianity was not just about faith in Jesus Christ, but it was also about adding the works of the Jewish law to their faith Or it wasn't enough. That's what the false teachers were saying. So Paul is comforting and confronting. And this false gospel needed to be exposed so that on Father's Day and every other day, we would be able to understand what our Heavenly Father has done for us. Our Heavenly Father, by grace through faith in His Son Jesus, has an inheritance for us now and forever And that truth, that gospel, is what our hearts need to know this morning. Let me pray before I read. And uh, at the beginning of our prayer time, why don't you go to your Heavenly Father in prayer? And if you need to confess a sin, hear your Heavenly Father's forgiveness do that. If you need to plead with your Heavenly Father for mercy or grace or comfort, why don't you ask Him for that at this time? Let's go individually to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Dear Father, you delight in your children. You sing over us. You offer to graciously give us what we need today. We think of you on Father's Day and every day. But Lord, it's true that you are even more pleased to be in our presence than we are to be in your presence. You're delighted now in us because of your Son, Jesus Christ. So now, Father, we're opening your word, and we ask that you would help us see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, Respond how you want us to respond. Do what you want us to do and rejoice in what you want us to rejoice in. Thank you for this time in your glorious word. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. This is the glorious word of our heavenly Father on this Father's Day. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, so far in Galatians 3, we've been talking about justification. How are sinners made right with a holy God? Is it by faith alone, sola fide, which we're calling our sermon series? Or is it by works on top of faith? And the argument of Paul's opponents, who we call the Judaizers, they went around to the Christians in Galatia, young, impressionable Christians, and said, you've got faith in Jesus. That's great. You're halfway home. You need to add works. You need to become Jewish. You need to get circumcised, at least the boys. And you need to do all of the Jewish works of the law, or you're not really in with God. I mean, come on. How can you just have faith? Well, Paul has been arguing all chapter that that is a false gospel. In verses 1 through 5, he says that the Galatians knew it was only by faith because of their own history. They came to know the Lord Jesus, trusted in him, and they had all the benefits of faith. They had the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in their midst, miracles being done among them. They believed, and so they knew it was only by faith. In verses 6 to 9, Paul challenges the false teachers by explaining that, yeah, well, Moses and the law, uh, let's go all the way back to Abraham. How was Abraham justified before a holy God? Was it by doing the law? No, it was by faith. Abraham trusted God. He placed his faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then last week in verses 10 through 14, Paul says, you know, if you're trying to get right with God by the law, you're only going to have the curse of the law. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the standard. So if you're trying to go on your track record, every one of you will be under a curse. And that means you're living under a curse and not living under a promise. So Jesus frees us from the curse of the law by hanging on the tree and taking the curse for all who have trusted in him. Well, now our verses today, Paul is essentially making a single argument. And this isn't a technical theological term, the way I'm about to phrase it. But Paul's main point in our verses today is this. God cannot change the rules in the middle of the game. That's what Paul is saying. God cannot change the rules in the middle of the game. How many of you hate when someone tries to change the rules in the middle of the game? Oh yeah, all the hands, and or you blame the refs. That wasn't how you called it in the first half. Or all the kids are like, yeah, we lost today because of the refs, right? 
You can't change the rules in the middle of the game. Abraham, the father of God's people, the father of our faith, was justified by faith alone, and that's the rule of the game. It's not going to change. So that's going to be Paul's argument, but we want to examine Paul's argument. It's one of his most complex and confusing arguments because he gets into grammar. We'll see that in a minute. Let's start out by looking again at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul's talking about a legal arrangement. The covenant that God made all the long time ago in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And this arrangement is called a covenant. But there were multiple kinds of covenants. And so this is a special version of a covenant that can't be changed ever. Look at verse 15 again at the end of it. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And this is pretty strange to most of us. Uh, we're used to making informal uh, relationship contracts. You know, hey, I'll pick you up at 7. Well, you got there at 7.15. Why don't you keep your arrangement? We do handshake kind of deals. We sometimes have legal obligations or contracts, but we can break them. We can get out of them. Uh, we're used to changeable contracts in one sense. For instance, if I offer you a used bicycle and you say, yeah, you'll pay me 20 bucks for it. But then you have second thoughts because you realize there's no way your legs are going to reach the pedals. Uh, then you can get out of that and there's not much I can do. You said you were going to give me 20 bucks. Yeah, but then I looked at the bike and I don't fit on it. All right, well, let's ramp up the seriousness of it a little bit. Let's say I offer you a used bicycle and you sign a piece of paper. I will pay Dave Matchett 20 bucks. And then you have second thoughts on that. Well, I might have some legal options because you signed a piece of paper. And you still might get out of it if your lawyer is good especially if your lawyer's legs won't reach the pedals. Well, if I put your name, though, in my last will and testament, your name, your name is in it, and you go to attend the uh, reading of my will after my untimely death, I don't know, saving my family from a bear attack. It's Father's Day. All dads want to be known as heroes. Whatever it was, if the lawyer reads the following... Your name here will receive the bicycle upon his demise. Then guess what? That bike is yours. Nobody can change that. The lawyer can't change that. I can't change that. I'm gone. And you've got a bike. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul uses the Greek word diatheke, and it's the word where we get the word covenant from. It's also sometimes used to mean testament, like last will and testament. In Greek law at the time, and this was different than Roman law, there was a type of inheritance law where you couldn't change the arrangement even if both parties were still alive. And there was a type of Jewish inheritance law at the time called a testament that you couldn't change even if both parties were still alive. So Paul is saying to the Galatian believers, think about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Think about it, think about it, think about it. It's the kind that cannot be changed no matter what, once it's been ratified. It's that permanent. Nobody is changing it, even though the covenant maker, God himself, is still alive. So this covenant with Abraham cannot change. Verse 15 again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
So that's what Paul is talking about. The covenant with Abraham had been ratified. And you don't have to turn there, but it's in Genesis 15. You remember the covenant cutting ceremony. God's talking with Abraham, and Abraham essentially is going to sleep, and uh, he had cut animals and put them in a path, and then God walks between the cut animals. In other words, if somebody breaks this covenant, God's going to end up dead like those animals. That's how serious he took it. He ratified the covenant with Abraham. It has been ratified. God was going to keep his promises. He's not going to change the rules in the middle of the game. Not only can the terms of the covenant not be changed, but something else cannot be changed. The parties of the covenant. What was going on in that covenant? Well, the parties, God and Abraham and his offspring, the terms of the arrangement can't be changed, but the people, the parties of the covenant also cannot be changed. And that's in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. All right, if you're going to understand Paul here, we need to talk a little bit about grammar. Raise your hand if you love grammar. Way more hands than I thought were going to go up. Some of you only like grammar jokes. You don't like grammar at all. What's the difference between a cat and a comma? One has claws at the end of paws, and the other is a pause at the end of a clause. No? Oh, it's Father's Day. I needed a dad joke. One more. Knock, knock. Two. No, no, it's to whom. It's to whom. It's a grammar joke. Paul is making a very complicated grammar claim here. And honestly, I learned in seminary when I studied Greek and Hebrew that I did not know English grammar. I didn't know English grammar. Paul is making a complicated grammar argument here. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to, remember the parties can't change of this kind of a covenant. So who were the parties? Okay, verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul is trying to say, think about the covenant with Abraham, who were the parties involved, and he is saying that the original promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring, in some sense, was actually pointing to Jesus Christ, was actually promised to Jesus Christ. And that was the debate in Galatia. Remember so far in Galatians? Who is the offspring of Abraham? Who gets the promises to Abraham? Who gets the blessing of Abraham? Who is blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith? Who's in God's family? Paul is saying that in some sense, when God made that promise, it wasn't just to Abraham's immediate child, Isaac. There was more going on in the grammar of what God did when he made that covenant. In some sense, it was pointing eventually to Jesus. It wasn't actually permanently referring to Isaac, Abraham's son of promise. And it wasn't only referring to Israel, the Jewish people biologically related to Abraham. But it was primarily referring to Jesus. Look at the middle of verse 16 again. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
So when we think about the covenant to Abraham, Jesus was always involved in that arrangement. It was always pointing ahead. Abraham was not the final person. Isaac was not the final person. The Jewish people were not the final people. Jesus was the one being promised to in that covenant arrangement. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, if you study the covenants in the Bible, you know that of course Paul knew that God's promises did apply to Abraham's son Isaac. Paul references that earlier in Galatians. And Paul knows that the promises to Abraham in that covenant did have a way that they applied to the Jewish people specifically. Paul knows that. Paul also references the fact that everyone who places their faith in Jesus, like Abraham, is connected in some way to those covenant blessings. He says all of those uses of the word offspring and blessings elsewhere. But here's Paul's logic. If we can narrow down what he's doing with this grammar argument. God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. Here's the logic. Abraham's offspring was a group of people, a collective noun, a a group of people. So I can say the church and I can mean a particular thing or I can mean all of the people in the church, a collective noun. And I can say from up here, the offspring of Abraham, I could mean Isaac, I could mean the Jewish people, or I can honestly refer to everyone who has ever sung with faith, Father Abraham had many sons. In some way, it's all connected. Every use of that term, I can mean when I say Abraham's offspring. Paul's opponents are saying, You can't be Abraham's offspring. You can't be right with God unless you're biologically connected or you follow the ethnic laws to become Jewish. You're out. You're not even a second-class citizen. You're not even in. That's what the Judaizers were saying. And so Paul says, don't you understand that that promise to Abraham had its final fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And the promise was pointing to Jesus, and faith makes you in Jesus Christ. We'll get there in two weeks, but look ahead at the end of Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Paul says, Galatians 3, 29, And if you are Christ, if you are in Christ by faith, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Gentiles are not Jews, but they are in Christ Jesus, so they will get the inheritance that Jesus earned for them, promised to us by the Father. So, of course, the covenant must have pointed to Christ, because the only way to be right with God is not through the law, it's not through Abraham, but it's through union with Christ. To put it another way, Paul is saying, what made Abraham right with God? You know, when Jesus walked in a life of perfect faith, he didn't put his trust in Abraham. Abraham was the one who had to put his trust in the eventual Messiah, Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, you get the blessings of the covenant. And that's why we can receive all these blessings Paul's been talking about in Galatians, even though we're not Jewish. So the covenant promise of God to Abraham was actually made, Paul says, and to your offspring who is Christ. And that's why we can get what he earned in the covenant. You know, we get a good way to summarize what we get. What is the inheritance God has for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus? It's grace. 
It's amazing grace. Amen? I said this before and someone said it was really helpful. I didn't come up with this. But if you take G-R-A-C-E as an acronym, it's such a beautiful phrase. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, grace. What is Paul talking about? The reason why faith in Jesus gets you the blessings of God, the inheritance God promised to the eventual perfect heir, Jesus Christ, it's because of grace. It's a gift you didn't deserve. It's God's riches at Christ's expense, his incredible costly expense. And you know, as we go out, we say as a church, our goal is to make as many people as possible fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. This really is the thing that makes Christianity different. The message, whether we're talking about Abraham, whether we're talking about Jesus, whether they're Old Testament or the New Testament, the biggest difference when you tell your friends is grace. It's grace. That's the difference. So this week, if you're talking to family and they want to know, tell me really what you believe. What is Christianity all about? Or you're talking to a coworker, or a boss or a neighbor or a stranger or an enemy. What, is it, what does it mean? Grace is the main difference between Christianity and every other religion. In Christianity, Paul says, we live by a promise. We put our trust in Jesus. Well, the Judaizers back then said, it can't just be faith. It can't just be promise. You've got to add works. You've got to do the good stuff to be right with God. And that is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. We live by grace and promise, not law and works. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. Listen to the difference it can make in your life when you understand grace. The Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope, by being good, to please God if there is one, or if they think there isn't one. At least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside of him. He doesn't think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And I love this picture. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it's bright, but it becomes bright because the sun is shining on it. That is such a difference. We live by grace and the promise of God. We don't live every day. Oh, I hope I was good enough. I trust that I'm good enough. I'm going to be good enough. I'll try harder tomorrow. Oh, no. Oh, no. Am I good? Am I good? Am I good? That's slavery. That's not freedom. In fact, when you live like that, you'll be really bad at obeying the law of God because you'll only be doing it out of miserable shame or you'll be doing it uh, with pride in your heart that you've done it enough lately. That's slavery. Well, in case there's any confusion with what Paul's saying so far, look at verse 17 now. We're living by promise, not by law primarily. Verse 17. This is what I mean. Thank you, Paul, because we have questions. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Are we right with God by faith in the promise or by works of the law? Paul says, don't you understand history? 
The law came 430 years after Abraham in the life of Moses. And so our only hope to be right with God has to be in the promise made to Abraham, in the unbreakable, unshakable covenant promise God made all the way back at the beginning. So our only hope can be in Christ. And this makes a huge difference. If you're living by promise or if you're living by law and works, it changes everything. It'll change your tomorrow. It'll change your Wednesday. It'll change your Saturday. It'll change everything. It'll change your victories. It'll change your failures. It'll change how you love others. It'll change whether or not you have the endurance to keep loving others who are hard to love. It will. Because grace changes everything. Our hope is based on a promise, not the law. So Paul is saying, don't you understand our relationship with God is grace and faith, not law. Let's talk about promises for a minute. How do you live by promises? Think about it for a minute. What's Paul saying? Well, if I promise to make you a sandwich, how many of you are excited? Are you excited? What can you do to make sure that happens? You can either trust me that I'm going to make you a sandwich, or you can doubt me that I'm going to make you a sandwich. What else can you do? You can trust in me or not. If you make the sandwich for yourself, then I didn't keep my promise and you had to work for it. It wouldn't be me keeping my promise. And so we've got to figure out what does it mean to live our lives in light of the promise instead of the law. So two applications for us this morning. Here's two applications I have for us this morning. Number one, We live life based on God's promises. We live life based on God's promises, not the law. So let me ask you a question. Are you going to spiritually survive this week? Are you going to make it no matter what comes? Some of you think you know what's going to happen this week. And you have no idea how hard or challenging this week's going to be. Are you going to spiritually survive this week? The promise says, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God will, no matter how hard it gets, graciously give you what you need. The promise says yes. Living by the promise says yes, God will get you through this week. Living by the law, adding the law on top of faith, says, well, maybe, maybe not. What if I fail? What if I'm given a test and I stumble? What if I'm given a test and I doubt? The promise says, yes, you will spiritually make it through this week. Living by the promise hopes that you will make it through this week. But living by the law says, I'm probably not going to make it through this week. I'm going to fail. I'm going to slip. I'm going to doubt. I'm going to stumble. Will you overcome sins this week? What does the promise say? Let's say you've been struggling with a sin for months. Are you going to have any chance to overcome that sin this week? Well, Jesus gives us victory over sin, and he promises to give us victory over sin. This week, the fruit of the Spirit growing in you. Peace if you need peace. Hope if you need hope. Victory over whatever it is. Lust, envy, pride, if you need it. The promise says, yes, it's been purchased for you. And living by the promise means trusting that God has a way to give you victory this week. But living by the law means you will absolutely fail this week. You're absolutely going to fail this week. If you used to live by the law with God, trying to overcome your sins on your own strength, that is a miserable journey to be on. I've been there. Many of you have been there. 
You're like, I need another accountability partner because my accountability partner doesn't call me regularly enough. Or I need to do this more. I need to do that more. I need to run this way. I need to... You're trusting in yourself to overcome sin. Jesus gave you the victory over sin, not you. So if you're living by the promise, you can have victory this week. If you're living by the law this week, you will fail because you have fallen short of the law. There's freedom and there's slavery. This changes everything. Let me ask one more thing. Will you earn eternal life by having perfect righteousness on your track record on the last day? Well, by promise, guess what? We get the righteousness of Christ added and credited to our accounts by faith. But by the law, we have all failed and we all needed that. So if you want eternal life, it is by being saved by grace through faith in Christ. You have eternal life now, abundant life now, and eternal life in the age to come. If you're doing it by law, then no chance will you live a perfect life and earn salvation of your own good works. Freedom, slavery, faith in the promises, trust in the law. So that's number one. We live life based on God's promises. That's the difference. That's the game changer. And for some reason, Paul keeps reminding the Galatian believers of this. It's easy for our hearts to get tricked. Because you know what Satan's favorite thing to say is? You failed again. Sinner, you don't deserve it. I wouldn't love you. Why would you even love you? Satan loves those. He loves to whisper those. And you know what? He's right. We have sinned. So he's got evidence against us. The only way to combat that is not by works of the law. Yeah, but I didn't sin today, Satan. Oh, he, he knows your track record. The only way is to scream back, my trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ who on a hill far away died on a cross to pay for that penalty. So Satan, you've got nothing left to hold against me. There's no condemnation anymore. So be quiet, Satan, in the name of the Lord. That's living by faith, not by law. That's receiving grace, not crushing yourself with the law which you failed. And Paul wants us to be set free. So number two, we need to remember God's promises. Number two, application, we need to remember God's promises. We need to keep reminding our hearts and our minds of the promises God kept. We want to spend time in God's Word because the more you read it, the more you're reminded, yes, God kept His promise there. And yes, God kept His promise there. And look at what God had to do to make that happen. He keeps His promises. We need to remind ourselves and each other. God kept His promise this week. Say that to someone after the service. Here's how God kept His promise to me this week. And encourage a brother and sister in Christ who might need it. One pastor on Twitter, Kevin DeYoung, said this week, he said, we will never be confident in God's future promises unless we take the time to recount his fulfilled promises. Isn't that helpful? If you're doubting the future, the, the remedy for that is to rehearse all of the promises God kept. So we're going to spend some time doing that at the end of the message here. If Paul wants us to base our faith on God's promise-keeping, not our law-keeping, and base our hope going forwards on God's promise-keeping, not our law-keeping, let's recount some promises God kept. All right? Some of you have in mind your favorite promises made in the Bible. Here are a few. 
God made a promise to our first parents in the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And our first parents ate of that tree, and now death is part of our story. God kept his promise. Death entered the world, but then he reminded them of another promise. Immediately after that, in his judgment on the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, one day the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, did crush the head of the serpent's offspring. He defeated sin and Satan and death. God kept that promise. God keeps his promises. Well, then to Abraham, he said, the promise we keep looking back at in Galatians 3 is in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at the time, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, listen to this promise, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how about that? 4,000 years later, after God made that promise, we're experiencing God's blessings in Skipac, Pennsylvania. Two things that didn't exist when God made that promise to Abraham. He kept his promise. When Israel went into the promised land, the promise is, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. The angel did go before them. God kept his promise. And God reiterates that promise to you this week. He will go before you. He will guard you from behind. He will protect you from the enemy's fiery darts. He will comfort you when you need it. And he will mourn with you when you're mourning. And he will rejoice over you when you're rejoicing. He will do that. He keeps his promises. In Joshua, when they finally make through the promised land, Joshua 21.45, listen to this, Joshua 21.45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The people who have walked with God in the Scriptures, in history, now, back then, tomorrow, last year, through every trial over the past 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they have all been able to say that not one promise that the Lord made has failed. All came to pass. You can live by the promises or you can live by the law. And the psalmist knows to trust God's promises when it's hard. Some of you need to hear this right now. Some of you need to hear Psalm 119, verse 50. The psalmist says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Where does the psalmist go when life is so unbearably hard? The psalmist cannot look at his circumstances. He cannot look at the past week or the past month or the past year. The psalmist knows when life is so hard to rehearse in his mind the promises of God. That's where the comfort comes from. 
May God give you who are in mourning and in affliction and in great trials that comfort this morning. Over and over again, the ones who trusted in the promise sinned. And God still kept his promises. He is the promise keeper. And since Abraham was a sinner and the Galatians were sinners and we are sinners, God was going to have to solve the problem of sin for us to get those covenant blessings. And so the promise is that one day there would be a Redeemer. And when God made that promise, I will send a Redeemer. I will solve the problem of sin. He knew what it would cost him. His own son's life. And when the time came, the father sent the son after having heard from him in the garden the night before. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, if there's any other way, the answer was no, son. I made a promise. Your life for theirs so that they can have the inheritance we planned for them. Consider that on this Father's Day. It is Father's Day. I love my kids, but when my kids scrape a knee, it runs down my spine. I can't imagine anyone harming any one of my kids. I received this morning before we left one card from one of my kids. The others are coming, I'm sure. They take their, some of them take their time on it. That's a reindeer from my daughter. I have no idea why there's a reindeer, but it's, it's the best reindeer ever because I'm her dad. And then on the inside, Dad, I love you. Eden, love. And uh, I got that, and she said, you, I said, can I show this to people? And she said, yeah, you can show it to people. Well, then in her uh, Sunday school class, she made me a tie. When I think about my kids, I love them. I don't want anything to harm them. I cherish every small act of love from them to me. And I can't imagine having to make a promise that would require the life of one of my sons for someone who had rebelled against me. So this week... As you go through trials, as you go through struggles, as you face failures, as you don't know what to do other than cry out, Lord, comfort, Lord, help, Lord, give me victory. Rehearse the promises of God and what he thinks of you. And consider this verse. If you want one verse for the week to rehearse in your heart and mind to get through whatever trial you're going through, it is Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32, say this when you don't know what else to say. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Are you going to make it through this week? Not by the law, but by the promise. He did not spare his own son, so he will give you what you need to get through today. He will give you what you need to get through tomorrow. He will graciously give you that, and he will not give you part of the things you need. He will graciously give you all things. That's how you live by the promise. So if you struggle this week, 
say Romans 8.32. If you fail this week, say Romans 8.32. If you doubt this week, say Romans 8.32. If you despair this week, go over Romans 8.32. He is going to keep his promise for you because he didn't even spare his own son, and he gives to all by grace through faith, all by our promise, everything you need. Verse 18 from Galatians 3. For if the inheritance, what Jesus purchased and earned for you, if it comes by the law, then it's no longer coming by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And that means this week, we live this week by promises and we live our whole life by promises. My final thought is this. As we come to the end of our lives, our final breath, Christians will not say on the last day, I did it! I made it. I earned it. I crossed the finish line of my own strength. I did it by keeping the law. I earned it. We won't say that. The Christian will say, with nothing but joy in our hearts, Jesus led me all the way. That's what we'll say. Because God is going to keep his promise. Let me pray, and then we'll sing about that. Heavenly Father, it is Father's Day. And you know what we needed to hear. And you know now what our hearts need for the rest of this day and week. Lord, we know you're a good, good Father. So comfort your people. Guide us. Grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. And help us remember that you did not spare your own Son so that we could be sons and daughters of you. May the praise of your son Jesus be on our lips today and this week. And may you help us figure out how to honor our earthly mothers and fathers, and particularly our fathers today. And Lord, when it gets hard, may we remember that you not only keep all of your promises, but when you think about us and what we're going through, you sing over us. You're our Heavenly Father, but by grace through faith in Jesus, we're your beloved children. Happy Father's Day, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.